Hey guys, it's Andrea and Emily here with The Culture Journalist. This week we're doing things a little bit differently in that you are getting pure, unfiltered, not from Concentrate, Emily and Andrea, because it's our first show without a guest, which we've been wanting to do for some time now. Before we start off, we wanted to thank you for listening in, whether you're an old listener or one of the many new listeners who have started tuning in this season, we are thrilled. We record and produce this podcast entirely by ourselves, so if you want to support the work we're doing, signing up for a paid version on our Substack goes a long way. And you can also help us out by not spending any money at all, just rating us and writing a little review on Apple Podcasts. To risk being a little meta, what we just did there, asking you to subscribe or write us a review, is actually very connected to what we want to talk about today. The rise of the so-called creator economy and the possibilities and perils of a model of cultural patronage grounded in a very specific type of relationship between producers and fans. We want to talk about how the creative landscape, from art to music to media, is moving in the direction of a very distinct model of patronage. We're talking about parasocial interaction. The phenomenon whereby a media personality or a Hollywood actor or a musician or even a YouTuber fosters a kind of heavily mediated and by some accounts false intimacy with fans that can be experienced by those fans as a genuine form of acquaintance, maybe even a close friendship. It's a dynamic that is perhaps most immediately recognizable in podcasts, which is another reason why this conversation feels so meta. Though I love tightly crafted works of narrative journalism in audio form, especially mysteries, probably the type of podcast I find myself tuning into the most are ones where it feels like you're just listening in on a hang between an old group of friends. And maybe over time, you almost start feeling like they're your friends too. Especially as the nightmare that was 2020 gives way to a somewhat more optimistic cultural landscape, it's hard not to look around and see how these parasocial dynamics have become so thoroughly entrenched at just about every level of the culture industry. And that's not just in terms of how it's pretty much impossible to build a career as a creative person without sharing a constant stream of thoughts, intimate confessions, and images from your life with strangers on the internet, all for fear that if you don't, you'll somehow fall off the map of cultural relevance. It's a dynamic embedded in some of the most talked about culture industry headlines in 2021. From the much ballyhooed rise of Substack as what some are calling a major competitor to legacy media companies like the New York Times now, full disclosure, you probably know this, but we put out this show on Substack, to celebrities like Alice Cooper and Elijah Wood selling on-demand personalized video messages to fans on Cameo, and to artists and musicians asking fans to support them on Patreon. And they're not just asking for money in exchange for exclusive pieces of content, but in many cases, access to these personalities themselves. In other words, people aren't just selling their creative work. The product is, partly at least, the relationship. Maybe the product is the artist themselves. In some ways, it's an exciting time to be a creative person, or someone who makes their living reporting on them. There's an anything-is-possible feeling in the air, the sense of a collective dissatisfaction with the old culture industry power structures, coupled with exciting examples of people actually succeeding, or appearing to succeed, by doing things differently. At the same time, there's a lot to unpack here, some of it less rosy than that picture would suggest. Is the new parasocial creative economy a great leveling of the playing field, a genuine step in the direction of a more democratized culture? Or is it a system where some people will rise to the top and others will just be putting out work into the void and performing a lot of free or undercompensated labor? Will it be a counterforce to structural inequality in culture or just further reinforce a growing divide between the creative elite and the creative middle class? And what does a landscape where creatives make money through maintaining constant contact with fans and supporters mean for the future of creativity itself? We'll be talking about this and much more after the break.
So Emily, what made you want to talk about the parasocial creative economy on this week's show? Well, it's been a number of things. It's been on my mind for a while, but I recently came across an article that sort of articulated something I'd been feeling. It's by Kyle Cheka and it's for Art News. It's called In the Digital Economy, Are Artists Creators? So it's about the rise of the so-called creator as a catch-all term for creative people working across a number of different media who make their living through cultivating a large audience, some of whom are paying benefactors on the internet. Yeah, and you, you sent me that piece and it really resonated with me too. There were so many great chunks that I think really articulated a lot of what you and I have been experiencing and discussing together. Is there a line that you want to read from it? Yeah, there's one line in particular that really stood out to me. He writes, similar to influencers, creators tend to be big personalities, people who audiences want to feel close to, not just because of their content, but their presence through the screen. As much as they discuss and promote their art, creators talk about themselves, their apartments, skincare routines, and self-help practices. Cloaked in the guise of a highbrow cultural product, what they really offer is presence and intimacy. And he says that this is fundamentally parasocial, which term he uses as a shorthand for the, quote, kind of one-sided emotional relationships audience develop with, you know, actors, podcasters, web personalities. Right. And this is now something that is being coupled with developments in the media industry. We've seen a lot of headlines about high profile journalists from legacy publications like the New York Times who are now getting approached by these new platforms like Substack and offered, you know, these really alluring, formidable, like kind of big deal deals. Yeah. So I think that Kyle Chica's article, which was much more focused on visual art world and those developments kind of got me thinking a lot about this. Business Insider recently dropped this report that was kind of shared in group chats and cross media about how the New York Times may even now view Substack as a competitor. In fact, Substack was reported to have approached numerous New York Times reporters with these deals. And the New York Times circulated a memo to its news and opinion staffers saying that requests by writers to start their own Substack would generally not be approved because, quote, these sites are increasingly acting as direct competitors to the Times. It also noted that the Times has been expanding its newsletter offerings. So this is significant in that the trend of writers, journalists starting their own platforms that are kind of based in some of these kinds of relationships with readers is actually impacting legacy media, perhaps, and causing it to rethink where it's going to go next. Right. All of you guys listening probably know this, but Substack is at its core a newsletter and podcast hosting platform. So, so it also implies like a certain kind of like weird feedback loop that like the, you know, we might be seeing like the newsletterification now of older and traditional media. Uh, yeah, I have to say that I have occasionally will browse the job boards like for media positions and see what's going on. And I more and more will see newsletter editor positions opening up. What I will say is that it makes sense in a way because publications also are just looking for ways to cut through the noise um, and they see this model as a way of reaching readers directly. Yeah, it's interesting because it almost feels like it's a sort of like happy medium between the immediacy of social media and I guess the overall like slowness, I suppose, of, of articles. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of just a way to like check in in people's inboxes, which makes sense, I guess. Totally. But then it's also like, I mean, I can't even tell you, I have like hundreds of newsletters that I have somehow subscribed to or been subscribed to over the years feeling my inbox. But before we get more into that, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit more about this concept of parasocial interaction. Can you talk a little bit more about it? Like, do you know the origins of the term? Yeah, so I'm no expert, but I believe it was a term coined by um, the academics Donald Horton and Richard Wall in 1956 
to describe uh, the, quote, illusion of a face-to-face relationship that consumers of the new mass media, radio, television, and the movie have with performers. So this was an article called Mass Communication and Parasocial Interaction. It describes what is sort of a two-way relationship, whereby formats like TV and film sort of enable actors and on-screen personalities to communicate with people using verbal and physical cues that simulate in-person social interaction. So the viewers, in turn, pick up on these cues and they feel like they're having a real-life interaction with the television personality. And the performer responds to that enthusiasm from the audience by amplifying these cues in turn. But notably, they say it's, you know, it's not a real relationship. It's one-sided, although it can have like real significance and meaning in the lives of consumers. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because the parasocial relationship feels like such a identifying artifact of like this current moment in time and like how we interact with each other as humans, as a culture (laughs) and technology, but it's actually not new. Like it's something that's been around as long as television and radio and mass communication itself. Totally. Yeah. And increasingly there's been a lot of academic research around, you know, how these sorts of relationships take seed and are capitalized on in social media spaces, gaming spaces, et cetera. Right. It's something that we've as a culture have been reckoning with for a really long time. It just feels like it's more accelerated now. Totally. And it's really funny because when I was looking into the history of the term, it turns out that Horton and Wall, they came up with it partly because they had a fascination themselves with the media personality called the Lonesome Gal, who was like a late night radio broadcaster, I presume, with a sexy voice, uh, who, according to these academics, was inundated with thousands of letters and, you know, marriage proposals. Well, yeah, I mean, that kind of that's kind of like the core of it, though, right? Which is, you know, people falling in love with someone they've never met, like, to the point that they are, like, so sure that they know this person that they are, like, willing to reach out and offer to spend their lives with her. Totally, yeah. And I think in the less extreme versions of this, it's just enjoying the routine of tuning into something, feeling like you're hanging out with a group of people that you know that are your friends. Even in the original paper by Horton and Wall, they called these sorts of offerings, quote, personality programs. And they talk about how the hosts of these sorts of programs They emphasize this sort of casual way of speaking, of informality, which you see so much in podcasts today. And also this idea of like a central host having a supporting cast of characters or guests that they have a familiarity with and running jokes about their personalities and like all these kind of things that point to an in-person social relationship. I feel like a podcast that has really had like a big impact on our generation is Chapo Trap House, where it's really like tuning in and hanging out with this group of people, recurring jokes, etc. Yeah, it makes me think a lot about even just the concept of like the late night TV talk show host. Mm -hmm. And especially like just going back to that description that you were just talking about. With the gestures, the conversational style, the the milieu of the informal face-to-face gathering. I mean, you know, it makes me think of, you know, everyone from like Dick Cabot to Conan O'Brien. You know, you think about them kind of like leaning over their desk, elbow under their chin, you know, taking jabs at these celebrities that otherwise seem like enveloped in mystique. You know, I'd say that that's almost like one of the first iterations that we've seen of this, you know, of like audiences from all across the country, you know, gather around their television sets to sit down with this host and have a conversation and laugh at their jokes. Totally. But as we kind of touched on before, these days, there are a lot of headlines about writers and journalists leaning into this dynamic as well. What, Andrea, do you make of all the Substack drama? What do you think makes the platform so controversial right now? 
Well, there's a lot of different levels to it. On the one hand, we have this kind of macro media narrative that publications are going to be losing their biggest name writers because they can't compete with the venture capital money that Substack has to throw around. And that now many of these big name writers are actually leaving because they feel that they stand to capitalize on the parasocial relationship with readers to make even more money than they did before. Yeah, I I have this like really distinct memory of, I think it was sometime last year when we had like read so many headlines of about tens of thousands of journalists losing their jobs And, you know, I was having a hard time and like trying to figure out how to make it through. And then I read this interview with the journalist Casey Newton, who was at that point leaving The Verge, where he worked as an editor to work on a newsletter for Substack called Platformer. And, you know, I remember him saying in not as many words, but kind of implying that when you work for a media company, there's a cap on how much money you can make. And that if you can get all these subscribers to give you a bunch of money, like $100 a year, you can make up to a million dollars a year. And he wasn't suggesting that like he made that, but sort of this idea that not only is Substack something that one would turn to maybe because they are having trouble maintaining employment in traditional media, but something that someone would go to because they could make more money. And that really struck me. Yeah, and I think that's what's kind of concerning about it. I think this came out around when you and I were starting the podcast and talking about which platforms to go with. And on the one hand, Substack seemed like this very cool DIY, no strings attached distribution platform. And then on the other hand, we find out that many of these writers are making six figures or more on Substack. In some cases, money that's offered to them directly by the company, along with perks like subsidized health insurance. So it just felt kind of like a gut punch. Like they were touting it as this one thing that seemed like it could help uplift journalists like us. And then on the other hand, they're sort of cherry picking already successful talent and throwing even more money at them. Yeah, and like, I think that as the timeline has progressed and seeing how things are evolving with Substack, there's a sense about the platform that it could be easily seen as highlighting what is already a growing inequality within the industry. Ben Smith, who wrote about Substack recently for the New York Times, he had a pretty good quote about how it embodied some of the contradictions and larger forces in the industry. He wrote, for one, the new media economy promises both to make some writers rich and to turn others into the content creation equivalent of Uber drivers. Yep, yeah, that that line in particular in that piece really resonated with me. I think all of this raises the question of, you know, what, what does this now mean for middle-class working journalists or out-of-work journalists? it highlights the growing inequality that we have in the industry, like you said. And there is some controversy as well alongside that about, you know, who Substack is giving its deals to or which writers it is allowing to write on the platform. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Andrea? I mean, some people have criticized Substack for hosting writers on the platform who might be considered by some as like anti-cancel culture and anti-identity politics you know, folks like Barry Weiss and Glenn Greenwald, and saying that Substack is giving a platform to media personalities that would make other writers on the site um, or who are using the site feel unsafe and whose work can even result in like harassment against their ideological foes. This in turn has led to some writers leaving the platform in protest, including Jude Ellis and Sadie Doyle, who penned a powerful article about how writers like Greenwald Jesse Single and Matt Iglesias had in various ways made Substack feel like an inhospitable environment for women, trans and non-binary people. There's another trans writer who had reported that she had started receiving spam from Substack writers with anti-trans ideology. You know, normally a lot of platforms, like you get an email that's like, confirm that you were subscribed to this, but Substack doesn't have that. So you can just like sign someone up for other people's substacks, which is exactly what happened to this trans writer. But we should note that Substack, for its part, has continued to assert that it's not a publisher. It merely invests in writers as a business opportunity. So 
similar, I think, to the like ideological debates that we're seeing around platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Substack is now facing the same thing of like, whose role is it? Or is it anyone's role to monitor, endorse, restrict what kind of speech and ideology is being propagated on those platforms? Yeah, and it's kind of a distancing measure to say, you know, we're not a publisher, we're just a platform. And it also makes it sort of murky for, you know, people like us who are running our podcast through Substack at this moment, though that likely won't be for very long. And that ambiguity, because it's not a publisher, or it claims to not be a publisher, it claims to not be a publication, it kind of makes it hard to tell, you know, am I a part of something by virtue of publishing on this? Or am I just using this sort of like neutral platform to publish this product that I'm putting out? Right, exactly. It's really complex. I think it speaks more largely to just how complicated it's getting out there. (laughs) Another issue is just that, you know, we kind of fall ourselves into this world of, you know, middle class working journalists where we have a lot of experience and we work for a number of respected publications, but we're not exactly like making millions of dollars or even, you know, maybe enough to buy like groceries once a month or something at this point. This is a labor of love and we have to put all the time we can devote to this project into making the product itself. And that's why it's hard to immediately make a move. We were both pretty struck by the contrast between Substack's elevator pitch to the world, where they claim that they're looking to reinvent the news business and the realities that we actually face running a Substack. They were touting themselves as like, we're attempting to build an alternative media economy that gives journalists autonomy. And, you know, if you don't rely on ads for your revenue, you don't have to be a pawn in the attention economy, which means then you don't have to compete with Facebook and Google, you know, and if you own a mailing list, no one can cut you off from your readers. And it's like, well, yes, that's all true. And that's awesome. But that must be a lot easier for those already established journalists that you guys are giving healthcare and big salaries to to do than it is for us to establish but working journalists who are also having to navigate limited budgets and full-time jobs outside of this. Yeah, I mean, what you were just kind of paraphrasing or reading from was this blog post that was published by co-founder Hamish McKenzie in May of last year when there was all these layoffs like we were talking about was really hitting hard. And that was sort of this really big moment that the company seized on where they published this, I thought actually very inspiring blog post saying, hey guys, it doesn't have to be this way. Like you can cut out this need to kind of like obsessively play the social media game, which is, you know, the direction a lot of media had been going in. And the truth of what, you know, we actually experienced, I think, when running our Substack, which we started a handful of months later, looks very different from that kind of utopian idea of cutting out the social media game and the pressures that fall onto journalists in traditional media context. I think that's right on. I mean, yeah, when we first discovered that and read that, and even just sort of like anecdotally had spoken with other journalists that we know that had used it already, I felt like really seen reading that, right? It was like, ah, yes, this is what we've been looking for. Like all all of this stuff that feels like an extra burden that's imposed upon us by the machinations of traditional media in the digital world. It seemed like this was just a way to skew all of that. And here we are, you know, however many months later, pretty frustrated. (laughs) I mean, not with the podcast. We, We love doing the show and we love you guys. But with the platform, you know, and above all, this whole like direct access and having to skip all the you know, annoying things about media that they seem to have promised hasn't really been the case. Like we're still having to do a ton of work. And when it comes to promoting the Substack, you know, visibility on the platform or elsewhere, like that's all falling on our shoulders still. Yeah. I mean, when we had Matt Dryhurst on recently, he was just like, it's just an RSS feed and a payment processor. Of course, it's more than that if you have a Substack Pro deal or whatever, but They advertise themselves as taking 10% of every payment. However, 
because most people sign up for like a $5 a month subscription. It's confusing, but basically the payment processor Stripe takes a certain amount of each of those transactions and it ends up being basically a dollar off of every $5. So it's actually more like 20% when you actually crunch the numbers. That is what it is. But I think what we've learned is that it's not built in a way that is bringing people to you. It doesn't really help with promotion. At all. At all. Yeah. It's, it's basically like, you know how we promote it? We promote it by tweeting about it and putting it on our Instagram. Yeah. Which is what we would do if we published, you know, an article with a publication, except that we don't have the support of that publication in promoting it in various ways or their large following. I do think that, you know, there are a number of like Substack alternatives that have come on the market. Twitter recently purchased a company called Review. While I'm not like a Twitter evangelist by any means, they might have some inbuilt technology by virtue of being Twitter that could help drive people to your publication. But as things stand now, it's almost like a totally different platform if you're not one of these extremely high profile journalist who is getting this support in these deals. And and I should add, pretty much all of the people I have heard of who have gotten these high profile deals, they all have humongous Twitter followings. And that's great. And it's not uncommon for high profile journalists, and it's understandable, but that's also quite the opposite of divorcing the process from playing the social media game. Right, exactly. I must just wonder, like, maybe we were just fools for thinking that that elevator pitch was targeted to us, you know? It seems like a great sell with the asterisk of, if you're already Matt Taibbi, you know? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe things changed. Maybe their strategy also changed since they wrote that. And you never know. I guess in a certain sense, Devil's Advocate, they don't really owe us anything. Like, who are they to have to help promote us, you know? Mm -hmm. Which is very much seems to be like the attitude that they're taking. (laughs) But it just just feels like a little bit like uh, being sold a false product. And it's just like, maybe the bigger takeaway is, this is not revolutionizing the media necessarily. This is not dismantling the power structure. This is not changing any of the like, entrenched problems that necessarily exist. I don't know if it's a Band-Aid solution, but maybe it's just another solution that could work for you if you either already have this huge inbuilt following or are a total workaholic who has like a lot of time inexplicably to spend on building a following from the ground up while living on like no money for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd argue that, sure, I guess some folks could look at it as a solution, but it's, it's less a solution than just kind of an extension or evolution of a pre-existing dynamic. I mean, like, let's talk about this. Like, is it really that divorced from the web 2.0 attention economy? I don't think it is. Most of the traffic that we get to our site is through Twitter. There is a letterboard on Substack. It shows the most popular Substacks in different categories but it's not boosting the people who aren't in that top 10 or 15 or whatever. And there's there are no alternatives but using social media to promote it, basically. Right. Like with everything else, it becomes a question of like, we need to figure out a way to make this podcast go viral <laughs> yeah. to get attention on Substack. Yeah. Which is exactly what we didn't want to really do. <laughs> right. <laughs> and another thing that I should point out is that a thing with this model is that you end up sort of being like a one woman or in our case, two woman shop that encompasses several of the roles that in a traditional media company would perform by multiple people. So you were a writer, you were an editor, you were a designer of the graphics you use. You are your own social editor. You were running the business side of things. Growth, all roles that would have a person or teams taking care of for you. And on top of that, you don't have the guarantee of a regular salary. For the average journalist who uses it, you don't have health insurance offered or subsidized by Substack. Right. You're not getting compensation for all of this extra work, basically. 
Yeah, you're not. And so unless you do it for a very long time or hit some viral jackpot, you're probably doing it under conditions of greater duress for less money, um, at least at first. Although there is, of course, of course, of course, the satisfaction of doing something yourself, having your own project that you own, not having to worry about somebody telling you you can't do something. All of this has got me thinking about just, you know, we were saying this is like actually feels like a kind of an extension of the Web 2.0 attention economy. I would also argue that it feels like a digital extension of the gig economy for journalists, you know? Mm, tell me more. Again, to go back to that quote about it's sort of feeling like the uberification for the middle class of journalists. Mm-hmm. Because it kind of does, because on the one hand, you know, depending on how you want to spin it, it's like, yes, this is all autonomous, like the same way that Uber drivers, you know, you have your own car and you make your own schedule and, you know, work as much or as little as you want. But what's not being seen there is then that person having to deal with like repairs and shitty passengers and Mm -hmm. gas and anybody who has like any kind of gig work and you know which is increasingly being touted as like a good thing in our society and I think is just like way more complex and even dangerous it's creating this expectation of it being good for you because you have total autonomy but what that's really leaving you at is like the whim of the complete lack of a safety net or like other support provided for you as an individual in society. I think this is again, going back to something that we spoke with Matt Dryhurst about and like just something him and partner Holly Herndon have been talking about for a long time is that it's competitive versus interdependent for the most part. Now there are interdependent examples of this that I do want to talk about, but it continues this competitive ethic of Can you work harder than everybody else? Can you come up with like the sexier headline than everybody else? And it it divides people. We look at this letter board, like who's rising to the top and who's falling. I see people like literally posting on Twitter about like, oh, we're right below this person on the Substack letter board. Can you help us rise to the top? Like it's not, it's not like mutually supportive or it, it can be, but but it doesn't feel like it's designed to be. Right. It, it can be, but that's just not what the online social climate has evolved to do right now. Yeah. And one interesting kind of exception to this, which was another kind of big media story recently, was the unveiling by a group of eight writers on Substack of this new Discord channel called Side Channel. They called it like a virtual newsroom. You know, it's kind of an interesting economic model. And I do think I would call it an interdependent one where basically if you sign up for a paid subscription of one of these publications, you get access to this joint chat room that they're working on. And I do think that, that that's a very elegant way of doing things. But yeah, I did find the development very thought provoking in that when it's in the context of Substack and also the sorts of writers that are given deals on Substack versus not or able to thrive on Substack versus not, it raises some like very zeitgeisty themes, I'll say. It feels like a very literal example of the parasocial dynamic. One of the writers who helped launch it, Anne Helen Peterson, had said, you know, in describing it, like, we'll do channels to discuss new pieces, channels to continue Q&As with people who have done Q&As for the newsletter, spontaneous what should I cook, watch, read tonight brainstorms, and reading and discussion clubs. So yeah, that's like, again, very, very literal iteration of the parasocial that almost like I'd say like crosses into the actual social, maybe. Yeah. And it's like, taking what could be sort of like a one sided parasocial relationship and formalizing it as more a relationship. However, it is like a relationship that people pay money to access. Right. It's still transactional. But yeah, there is this other thing she said, which was that she would use it to workshop ideas for future pieces with readers and bouncing around ideas. And 
I did think that was cool, but it was such a, you know, literalization of this idea of a back and forth or a relationship between writer and fan. I think it's also cool because that to me feels like something that rings true in terms of something that might actually be venturing beyond the confines of the Web2 attention economy. And maybe even exploring to throw back to our first episode from this season, the, the sort of dark forest alternatives to that incarnation of the information economy. Yeah, totally. We had a guest, Caroline Busta from New Models, who was talking about her work with the New Models Discord, operating in a different context from this, more of a art world theoretical context, I'd say. But this idea of creating like a secondary space outside of Web 2.0 to exchange, to have more genuine community where, you know, an employer isn't watching you a, like actually, and, and Helen Peterson specifically said, like, this could be a place for people who like or miss internet conversations that felt generative and overflowing and weird and addictive and, you know, something a bit more human scale than Twitter, for example. And I think sort of at the heart of what a lot of this is about or seeking to create or skirt or deal with is the notion of cultivating community. I mean, if you think back to like why media and journalism existed in the first place, you know, beyond the rote delivering news to people every day, um, but especially, you know, from a culture journalism perspective, it feels successful and necessary because what it ultimately does is cultivate community rather than exchanges. It's connecting over and sharing these things that we have in common. That's what culture is on on a certain level. Mm -hmm. You know, so that is what I like about some of these concepts because it it feels like a return to cultivating community. It feels like it is sort of breaking through the parasocial relationship and returning to the relationship relationship, I guess. And yet at the same time, There were some aspects of this particular project that kind of highlighted to me that these sorts of grassroots tactics could also be at home in a very different context, like not the kind of cultural underground or people who kind of need to resort to the dark forest because there's no place for them in Web 2.0, but these things could be sort of co-opted by the power structure itself, economic and and even technocratic elites. And I say that because this wasn't like a grassroots endeavor through and through. You know, many of the writers who were involved in this, one of them was, you know, the aforementioned Casey Newton. These were writers who, in a few cases, had received lucrative Substack pro deals from a company that is backed by venture capital, or in other cases had maybe foregone the deals or built their readership from the ground up, but who had made a name for themselves working inside the legacy media beast or already been social media successful. And in an extremely meta turn of events, they launched Side Channel with an interview with none other than Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg who used the opportunity to announce new features that Facebook is rolling out for creators, um, like some podcasting tools, ways that people broadcasting video can receive tips, and, you know, sort of giving us the sense that Facebook was using this interdependent moment to announce their intention to compete with these sorts of Web3 alternatives, Facebook being like, the definitional Web 2.0 company. It just feels like this very like inception, you know, <laughs> like this potential like bright spot and cool idea. And then all of a sudden it was like, and we're here rolling it out with our new friend, Papa Zuckerberg. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that most of them were pretty clear that they're not unable to be critical of Zuckerberg, but just this sort of like exchange of clout that is a very, big part of the parasocial economy. And it was an exchange that went both ways where Mark Zuckerberg, he had a captive audience of journalists in the room because journalists were curious about what was going on and they thought it was, you know, interesting. And then he uses it to essentially say, ah, 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 like 
I'm going to find ways to incorporate this new thing into what I am doing. <laughs> it's really, really heady. It, yeah, it's it's very heady. It's I don't know, it's like just so much to unpack and wrap my head around. Yeah. So now we're going to talk a little bit about what the new parasocial creative economy means for artists in particular. We've been talking a lot about media and a lot of the dynamics are the same, but some of them are a little bit different. Right. And it's an important thing to discuss because this is an issue that so many people are dealing with right now as the pandemic disrupts business as usual. You know, one that comes to mind was a guest from our first season, the DJ Jubilee. And she was telling us for our episode about the digital hustle, was telling us about how she felt that, you know, without being able to earn her living through playing shows like she has been doing, she's instead having to play live stream events on Twitch and other social platforms and do much more like social media promotion in general and essentially just having to do much more work for much less pay, which is sort of at the heart of what a lot of this discussion is about, I think. Yeah. And, you know, the Kyle Chaka piece we were talking about earlier in the new digital economy, our artist creators, he's talking more, I'd say, about the art world, but he broaches an important question about what sorts of artists and art practices benefit from this new creative economy and who is left behind. One thing he points to is just that You know, not every artist is a fit for this model, just as, you know, we've been saying not every journalist is a fit for this kind of model. And here's a quote. The creator economy leaves little room for the kinds of projects and practices that don't fit its pre-existing digital structures. In other words, anything that doesn't come out on a daily or weekly basis, creators who aren't personally charismatic or willing to be parasocial targets, or material that is too challenging or specific to net the immediate embrace of an enthusiastic audience. You know, I thought that that was a really great point that while it's great that, for example, you know, I've seen more and more musicians engaging with fans via Patreon or using it to launch like Discord rooms, Patti Smith, very different not a small independent musician, but Patti Smith has a substack now for her writing. It's great that musicians have this opportunity during a pandemic, but not everybody is a fit for this practice of regularly communicating with fans, etc. And I don't think that artists should have to be, but it's, it's weird because it almost seems like you do. Absolutely. It's like everybody now has to be a little bit of a celebrity if they want to be successful. There's really like no cleaving yourself from it because the structures upon which artists have historically relied for the dissemination promotion of their work, it's all been digitized and it's all like come back or fallen upon the shoulders of the artist or the creator. In the Kyle Chaika piece, one line that really stood out to me that was, I think, saying that, you know, all of these methods ignore the flawed basic premise of creatordom, which is that all creativity should be monetizable and monetized. And that's not to say that, you know, artists shouldn't be paid for their work, but maybe it's like a very specific kind of monetization that the writer has in mind. Right. And it's just, I think it's more like, just because it can, does it mean it should and vice versa, if that makes sense? Because of the immediacy and the access that the digital creative economy has created. It doesn't leave a lot of room for opting out of that or by extension, having conversations or creating art outside of that. And also so much of the music that I grew up on and that, you know, kind of inspired me to become a journalist is not stuff that would would ever go viral in today's context or have a large enough fan base to sustain like a patreon on necessarily or like what happens if you're somebody you know a musician who really needs like a full year to make an album how does that person function in this environment do they have to take longer on their album and focus on like putting out little snippets or like videos or even like writing something for their fans do they have to like table the idea of an album completely? I don't know. 
do they have to sell it as an NFT? <laughs> that, that just kind of got me thinking about one thing where, where I wonder that if the sort of next generation that is growing up of and within this, mm-hmm. if they will be able to kind of take different trajectories with it or be able to act outside of that because it's their milieu and they're so familiar with that, you know, mm-hmm. whereas we're like, we're on the wave as it's, as it's cresting, like they'll already have been past it. I guess the reason I, I, I bring this up because it, it got me thinking about there's this new young band from South London that I've been really into mm-hmm. who just put out their debut album. They're called Black Country New Road. Mm-hmm. And I talked to them a little bit for an interview I did about just kind of like being this young breakout band adapting mm-hmm. to pandemic. And they're kind of like an experimental jazz post-rock influence. They're fantastic, but it's it's very unconventional music. And they're like a collective of these seven kids. They all use fake names. But what struck me really about them is that they have an almost inverse social media presence. Like if you look on their Instagram, everything is a stock photo. Mm. And their album art is a stock photo. And they only have two press photos. And they're both just like kids in like very normcore outfits, Mm -hmm. just standing in a nondescript environment, like smiling very earnestly at the camera, which I found, you know, I don't know if that was cheeky, intentional or what. But it was just interesting, you know, with that context and then talking to them, because right before the pandemic struck, they were this huge hype band that had only released like a handful of songs. Last year was supposed to be their breakout year and everything. And now they finally released their album, Delayed, like a year later. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really blowing up. And they just don't do that much on social media. And they haven't really been able to tour yet. And it, it almost seems like doing the opposite of what a young band is expected to do is somehow really working for them because I think they are so associated both with this underground scene that they're actually a part of and also just the ethos of being underground and rejecting all of this. That's so interesting. Yeah. And it definitely speaks to what we spoke about with the counterculture episode with Caroline Vesta about can counterculture exist on the internet? Yes, but you have to sort of drop out of the clear net space, the world of where everything is like immediately accessible and visible to everybody and in a way sort of attract people through osmosis to you, but not in the usual way that we're accustomed to. And I guess almost like more in the way that things used to be when I was like in college or my early 20s, like going into these self-selecting spaces and like shows where you would go to seek out other people like you. I think there's also like a mirror of that in Dark Forest Discords which is like definitely a culture that I think Gen Z is really tapping into a lot. The band posted like twice during the whole pandemic, which is crazy. Mm. I mean, not, it's not crazy, actually. It shouldn't be, but it feels like in context of this conversation, it does. But I almost wonder if the fact that they only use these stock photos and they don't have this overeager push to interact with people constantly and they're just letting their own natural hype cultivate around their music and their performances if that becomes its own kind of online signaling on the clear net, the signaling of like, we are not clear net, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that's so cool. You know, there's a lot of, obviously a lot going on with Spotify right now and like musicians unionizing and trying to fight for a penny per stream and like improvements to their compensation model. But I, I have this hypothetical thought that if all people who didn't make a lot of money on Spotify, like independent artists, decided to drop off the platform en masse and just be like, no, this is for people who want to be clear net and want to be mainstream. People would start buying records again, I think. Or that's just like my armchair philosophizing. I don't know about that, honestly. I mean, obviously, I would want to believe that. That would be my hope. I'm right with you there. But I think the Achilles heel of all this is convenience. That's why Spotify has gotten to where it is because it's all in one place. You know, it act, it acts for you. It literally curates the next song for you. I don't know. I guess it just depends on what what would be the critical mass that it would take for that to happen and be successful. I feel like it would have to be a lot. I just mean like if Spotify, for example, like rebrands as an audio first company, which they've been saying they are, right, and it just became like the equivalent of mainstream radio. 
and talk radio Mm. just kind of like went back to how it was maybe when we were growing up and like you had to go to college radio or record stores or find like online destinations for the kind of thing you wanted then the people who do like that music the only way they could get it would be by paying again or some other version of streaming that is like more equitable which I know like we've talked about and yeah I mean we're so in it right now that of course it's hard to see but I I do wonder if and what the cyclical nature of this is going to be like you were saying, you know, like it'll be, will Spotify become the next MTV or the next talk radio? It'll just become like too big and mainstream. Or like, I don't know, will there be in a mainstream? Will there still be a divide by the time Spotify hits that point? Or is it just going to be monoculture? Well, there will definitely be power imbalances, probably. And there will never not be power imbalances. Divides between who is benefiting from a system and who is not benefiting from a system. And that's kind of the last thing I wanted to mention, which is that, you know, in the Kyle Chaka article, he talks about how certain artists may be able to support themselves as creators if they are a fit for the job, if they have this drive to become like a parasocial target, if the work they do is like suited to it, but that he says most are likely to find it just as onerous and exhausting as the gallery system. And um, I think it's just important to realize that things that are touted as, you know, the new thing in art, the new thing in media, the new thing in music, don't necessarily represent true breaks from the status quo. And they may actually just be sort of in this phase of highlighting inequality or increasing inequality until a solution is found. Yeah, exactly. That's what the pandemic has done. And that's what social media has done. Like they've both Mm -hmm. been these incredible accelerators for the status quo. Maybe deep down, there's an opportunity within this, if only because it feels so much more visible and palpable than it ever has before. Mm -hmm. And there's both a breakdown of and amplification of gatekeepers now. Maybe Substack will become something that only like journalists who play the Twitter game and have over 100,000 followers do and the other journalists find other platforms. I hope so, because the guiding dynamic right now is just that of keeping up. I think as long as you're trying to keep up, you can't actually like illuminate any new spaces. We're all very tired. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. To check out some of the pieces we mentioned and more on parasocial anxiety, head to, yes, our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.